0: Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about BetOnline.ag. All eyes are on the gridiron as teams are back for another football season. And as always, BetOnline is your number one spot for all the pro and college action this season. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Use promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, to receive your bonus today. From football, basketball, boxing, right to your favorite Vegas casino games, don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers on the 2021 season. Bet Online, where the game starts. Of the Take It Easy Podcast live on the Bleve Podcast Network. Except it isn't live because it's a podcast. Welcome in everybody. It is What If Wednesday here on the pod, and we're combining a version of What If Wednesday into an oral history of the San Diego Superchargers. Uh, here on the pod because I was thinking about Marlon McCree recently and uh, Marlon McCree's story is super interesting and nobody really knows what happened to him and we will uh, talk about him if you don't know who Marlon McCree is you will find out later on here in the show and how you can draw a direct line between one moment my life my cities, my home city's life and sports fandoms So we'll get to that in a little bit here on What If Wednesday. But first, there are no more ifs, ands, or buts about it because Major League Baseball playoffs have concluded the first round. Let's hit the music here to kick us off and talk baseball here in the A Block. So you guys hear me talk about all the time about how MLB's playoffs are completely random and weird stuff happens all the time. And we have crazy upsets happen here and there a bunch. And I don't like making predictions in the playoffs, except when my predictions become right. Because I'm looking at the Astros and the Giants right now. I'm feeling real good about myself, especially after the Houston Astros Had a little two day delay on their inevitable beatdown of the Chicago White Sox because they were just totally outmatching the White Sox. It felt like that series from like two years ago when the Twins played the Yankees, where I didn't watch a single inning, I don't think, from start to finish of that Twins Yankees series because the Yankees just swept the Twins right out of the playoffs and the Twins just had no chance because the AL and NL Central. Never cease to amaze me with just how terrible those divisions are. None of the teams have tons of spending power. The, uh, the Cubs theoretically do, but like in in the AL East, where you have four teams win ninety games and they all should have been in the playoffs. You have the crappy AL Central, where the White Sox get to make the playoffs, yes, but they just get to do it because they're beating up on Cleveland and Kansas City and Minnesota and Detroit for half of their games during the season. They're just totally outclassed by the Astros. I felt coming into the series, it was either going to be three or four games, ended up being correct. Astros did take four games, but one of that was just a White Sox offensive outburst, which we did like fully admit, Like the White Sox can hit the ball a lot. Like Luis Robert is going to be super special. Eloy Jimenez, really good. Tim Anderson, older, but still really good. Like The White Sox are a pretty good offense. It's just that the Astros are a better offense and the Houston Astros have a really good bullpen. And the White Sox bullpen got smacked around in that game too when they traded Craig Kimbrell for one of their top prospects. I forgot who they traded Craig Kimbrell for, but it was for a really good player. Um, And so the White Sox ended up uh, sending Craig... They traded for Craig Kimbrell and it ended up being worth just nothing. Now, they still get him, I think, think for maybe one more oh it was Madrigal that's right. Forgot about that. Madrigal was really good too. Like that was a big trade that they decided to make with the Cubs in giving up Madrigal. But even still, White Sox end up getting outclassed. Kinda was expected to happen. The Braves I did not expect to happen because we did a podcast a couple weeks ago saying like the peak of the Atlanta Braves was last year when the Braves were up 3-1 on the Dodgers and kind of fell apart after that. They blew the 3-1 lead, but it wasn't really their fault. It was just the Dodgers were a better team than them. And the Dodgers are a better team this year. And the Giants are a better team this year than the Braves. I was saying the Dodgers-Giants series was the one that felt like you're playing for the World Series at this point. I just wish that the games weren't on so late so that I had to you know go to sleep during Game 3. It was one nothing. yes, they didn't score the rest of the way, but... I wanted to go to sleep instead of staying up to watch the Giants and Dodgers game, and so I'm watching the brewer the Brewers Braves series a bunch because the Braves have I've made the joke like the Braves are just always on at one o'clock in the afternoon every October. It's it's that stadium. It's daytime games. None of them matter. The Braves are gonna win a couple of them. They're gonna play an NL Central team like. It it was fun while it lasted, but the series was just so bad. I made the joke that's like this is making me hate October baseball, watching Brewers Braves and then going to sleep for parts of the Dodgers Giants game. But that all ended up getting corrected when Freddie Freeman hit that bomb of a home run and finally had someone other than Jock Peterson and Rowdy Telez having offense in that series. And to do it off Josh Hader is going to be a legendary moment that we remember. And the Braves made me eat my words because yes, they, at the time they were behind the Mets and they, their run differential was way higher than the Mets. So that part, I don't feel bad about watching them come back. Like if you subscribe to the, the idea that run di- differential gives you a better idea of which teams are, you know, performing under expectations and which teams aren't, then the Braves getting the third seed wasn't as surprising in What we thought was a super weak NL East and then come to find out, oh, the Brewers just can't hit (laughs) the Brewers just can't hit the baseball. I mean, I saw the team. I was like, oh, that's interesting. It's like a weird combo of people that they acquired at the deadline. Like you've got a Escobar over there. You've got Willie Adamas. You've just got a bunch of like random people flung together to kind of make up a lineup. Rowdy Telez was acquired from the Blue Jays. I, I I saw Travis Shaw during our watch party with Morgan from Australia. I was stunned that Travis Shaw wasn't running around on the Brewers too. Um, they had Vogelbaugh who was in there, like just bringing all these rejects from other teams who hit about league average and putting them together in a lineup with Yelich who clearly has the back problems. Like, I don't know what the future holds for the Brewers, just because this year was so weird. Because like we said, their offense was bad the whole year. It was ranked 27th. It finished. It was ranked 27th up until the trade deadline. I'm looking at it now. They finished 22nd on the season in offense. Like, they were genuinely bad offensively. They just had three great starting pitchers who pitched pretty well in the series, like as well as you could expect. And Devin Williams, who broke his hand right before the playoffs, punching a wall in anger, in a a fit of drunken anger after celebrating the division title. Um, And then Josh Hader, who ends up, you know, he's always perpetually on the trade block and he's the best reliever in baseball. He's so good. And he ends up giving the walk-off homer to Freddie Freeman the same way we remember like Mike Brasso's home run against Chapman or Altuve's walk-off against Chapman or Rajai Davis hitting a homer off Chapman. And I know I keep going back to Chapman, but Chapman's had so many of these moments. Kenley Jansen's got a few of them in there too, where we just remember like the brutal walk-offs of really good pitchers and really good relievers in the postseason. This is just going to be one of those moments that hater just gets turned into a meme, unfortunately for hater. Still one of the best relievers in baseball. It's just going to happen when you face an MVP in these situations. Eventually, it's going to make you pay. Weird stuff happens in October baseball, and the Braves made it back to the NLCS despite convention. Um, I thought the Yankees wouldn't be able to close the gap in the AL East. I was technically wrong, but the Yankees did end up getting bounced in the wild card, which makes me feel a little better. And I didn't think that they would, I didn't think the Braves would be able to get back to that place. Now, will they get back to being one game away from the world series? Probably not. I suspect they'll lose in the NLCS, but it's still super fascinating to watch Atlanta win a series emphatically um against a Brewers team because I said coming into the series over on the slump buster I felt like that one was the closest of the four I felt the Astros had the best chance to move on Giants second best uh Rays over the Red Sox and then Brewers and Braves was a toss-up that I gave to the Brewers and the Braves like took care of business for the most part of the series like they won game two pretty emphatically. It was like 2-1, to one, but still, they pitched awesome in that game, and we weren't sure that was going to be the case, and we talked about that on Wired Up on Sunday, so you can go back and check out that for our thoughts back at that point. And then these next two games, they just played really, really well. And shout out to, you know, Ian Anderson, who pitched really well for the Braves and Freed feels like a bona fide number one and Charlie Morton giving them two starts that were awesome in this series, like just all around great job by the Braves. And you know what? Maybe I'll play the October baseball card and say anything can happen, even though I feel pretty good in saying the Braves are going to get bounced out in the NLCS and get bounced out pretty emphatically because they are... Just they're not talented enough. I'm sorry to the Braves, but even still, like maybe the weird sample size thing happens for the Braves. Seven games less random than the five. I mean, the five game one feels less random than the one game, which is just a total crapshoot, but. The, the five-game sample at least gives us some representation, especially if the team is exponentially better than the opponent. You can usually get the result that you expect. So it's a huge credit to Atlanta for getting back to that point because I thought this was going to be the decline of a dynasty when Ronald Acuna went down. Not because like Ronald Acuna is a single player that makes a huge difference. I don't think there's any player in baseball that's that good in a sport where the Angels can't make the playoffs with Trout. And with uh, with Shohei Otani. Like I don't think there's any player that single handedly turns the tide that way. I just thought all of the all of the foundation was in place for the Mets to kind of be the team that faced the Brewers in the playoffs. And that did not happen. It was the Braves for the fourth year consecutively winning the division, still mounting their flag on We Are the Best Team in the national league east we're going to hold on to that crown for as long as we can we finally have a bona fide ace in max freed at least uh, at least a legitimate number one starter i won't say he's an ace like top five pitcher in baseball but a legitimate number one starter with a sub three era and an mvp here and maybe ozzy Albies will turn it around and hey jock peterson had six rbis in a series where they only had like 15 runs in or 14 runs in four games or something like that like yeah we can we can piece this together and beat at the very least a brewers team that comes out of a byproduct of the crappy nl central which the nl central and al central just never fail to disappoint the last year in the extended playoffs the entire final eight was it was east and west divisions. The entire AL and NL Central got eliminated in the wild card round in the 16 team expanded playoff. Twenty nineteen, nope, neither team. Well Cardinals made it to the CS but got swept immediately out by the Washington Nationals. Cleveland made the World Series in 2016 and played the Cubs after that. Cubs got back to a CS 2018 or I'm sorry, 2017 Cleveland had the best record in baseball, lost to the wild card Yankees, all that stuff. Central has not failed to disappoint across the last four years in being disappointing and just creating fun content, because the AL and NL Central are just terribly mediocre divisions. Which brings us to the Giants and the Dodgers. Because, of course, this series is going to five games. Dodgers have looked great in two, and the Giants have looked great in two, which doesn't create for a ton of drama. But even still, I guess a one nothing game on a... Monday night can be very exciting if you're willing to stay up till one o'clock Eastern time for it. Uh, This is the series that I think we all were kind of hoping would go to five games and we create a winner go home situation with what I said at the beginning was the de facto World Series. Now, do I think that the Giants and Dodgers can beat the Braves? Absolutely. And I'm interested to see what ends up happening when they meet up. But to the point about the series going long, I mean, you're you get more baseball first and foremost, but then October baseball, you create this random one game sample size where it's not the greatest representation of who the best team is. And maybe you'll get a blowout and maybe you won't, but the very least, it's going to be super interesting, and then we have a day off from baseball, which makes it better. You've got Urias taking on Logan Webb, the rematch of Game One, which Logan Webb dominated, and Urias is, uh, you know, he he's not the first option you'd pick if you're the Dodgers. Obviously, you, you, Bueller had to take Game Four to help you get there, and shout out to Mookie Betts for the big, finally coming through in the playoff home run because he was hitting like 257 this year, but. Even still, like it was Urias is like the fourth option you would pick as a starter at this point, and it's super duper interesting because now the entire season goes there, you get to bring different bullpen situations in, and it's gonna be so much fun anytime you get the Dodgers in a winner go home game five. Because for people who don't know, like I used to just hate the Dodgers. My rooting interest in the playoffs would be hating the Dodgers. And I think as my sports fandoms evolved, which we will very much talk about here coming up when we do the oral history of the San Diego Chargers, but as my fandoms evolved, I don't—I didn't have the same hatred because I didn't want to invest that much emotional stability in something that really doesn't matter. And so now I go in picking the Giants, the anarchist team, against the Dodgers who have been great for a decade now, a decade of being the model franchise in baseball. And it It's a rivalry, it's going to be up the street in San Francisco, maybe I should buy tickets to Game 5 on Tuesday and drop a few hundred dollars. If anyone wants to sponsor us, bet bet online, you can give us $300 so we can cover the game live, that would be very much appreciated here, but even still like it's it's exciting it's it's a weird vibe and fun atmosphere and you get a game five all together it's gonna be so damn interesting and you get logan webb as the starter for the giants which would just be perfect if the dodgers get derailed by logan webb and whatever's left of evan longoria and austin slater as they've pretty much been throughout this series so far it's gonna be so much fun to get to that point With that being said, that is our baseball coverage, and we don't have baseball again until Friday to talk about. So uh, let's enjoy this two-day pause from the absolute anarchistic chaos that is playoff baseball. And even with all the randomness in playoff baseball, baseball is the sport with the least parity, where we end up once again with the Atlanta Braves in the CS, the Houston Astros in the CS, the Boston Red Sox, and potentially the Los Angeles Dodgers, for all the anarchy and chaos of baseball. Sometimes the same people end up at the end of the gauntlet as they do every single year.
1: January fourteenth, two
0: 2007. The San Diego Chargers are playing the New England Patriots in the 2006 AFC Divisional Playoff. The sound you just heard was with 8 minutes and 30 seconds left in the fourth quarter, MVP running back LaDainian Tomlinson scores a 3-yard touchdown to put the Chargers up 21-13. The Chargers are having the greatest season in franchise history. They finished 14 and 2 in the regular season, the number 1 seed in the AFC. At Qualcomm Stadium, the former home of the Chargers, they were 8 and 0 on the season. Ladinian Tomlinson had broke the NFL's touchdown record for a single season. On his way to winning the 2006 NFL MVP, the Chargers had a third year quarterback named Philip Rivers, who that week, in a Union Tribune article, dubbed Philip Rivers Looks to Take the Reins from Tom Brady, who at the time was reaching the peak age of 27. The Chargers thought that they were the next great team in the NFL. Yes, the Patriots had won three Super Bowls. The year prior, the Patriots were eliminated in the second round by Jake Plummer's Denver Broncos. And this year, the New England Patriots were the four seed in the AFC, their lowest seeded finish of the Brady-Belichick era. The Patriots were kind of in a retool type of year where they weren't sure how good of a team they actually were and key pieces from the Super Bowl, like Ty Law, were no longer seen as superstar-type players. And so the Chargers, who, again, were 14-2, and two, up 8 points, were giving the ball to Tom Brady. In this moment, the Chargers are having the moment of reckoning for their franchise. Across 40 years, the Chargers had not won a Super Bowl, and the past 20 had been a constant battle of will they, won't they relocate the team from San Diego. The Chargers had been fighting for a new stadium since 1991. The Chargers won their first AFC championship in upset fashion in 1994 when a bunch of misfits led by third-year linebacker Junior Seau and a quarterback named Dan Humphreys ended up upsetting the Pittsburgh Steelers at Pittsburgh before they went on to lose to the 49ers in what is still to this day the largest blowout in the history of the Super Bowl. And then the Padres, the San Diego's other professional sports team, won the National League in 1998. And that victory ended up getting the Padres a brand new stadium in downtown San Diego. And so the Chargers were battling for years to try and figure out a new stadium. They'd brought in ringers, lawyers, everything imaginable to try and get a publicly financed stadium in a state that notoriously would not give public financing to private stadiums. And the Chargers kept trying and trying and trying. And the only thing preventing them from leaving San Diego in 2005 was the fact that the Chargers were winning the AFC West in their most dominant stretch of football since Dan Fouts and Kellen Winslow and Lance Allsworth in the 1980s. You could argue it was the greatest run in the franchise's history ever. And the Chargers were right on the precipice of making it to an AFC championship against an Indianapolis Colts team they had already beaten earlier in the season. What set up was a 3rd-and-5 With 704 left to go, Tom Brady had the ball at the Chargers' forty-one yard line. It was third down and five.
1: Snap in time, stepping up. And then wanted
0: to pull back and throw. Tom Brady tried to scramble on third and five before he ended up falling to the ground for a one-yard loss. The Chargers had fourth down and six. Up 8, 6.25 left to go. One play, and the Chargers are going to potentially run clock, get into field goal range, and eliminate the New England Patriots. And what happened next was the most Chargers moment of all time. A moment that you can draw a near direct line from that happening and that play going differently to the Chargers leaving San Diego for Los Angeles, the future decision to draft Justin Herbert, and the franchise being in the position it has been for the past 15 years. From one singular play. By a man named Marlon McCree. On 4th and 5, Marlon McCree intercepted Tom Brady. And as he was running the football back on a play where if he had just gone to the ground or dropped the interception, the Chargers would have gotten better field positioning, was stripped by Ty Law, that aging corner slash wide receiver slash multiple positions that helped him make the Hall of Fame. He ripped the ball out of McCree's hands and the Patriots recovered for a fresh set of downs. And what happened next? The Patriots recovered that football, went down, scored a touchdown with three minutes left to go, converted a two point conversion, went to overtime, made a game winning field goal and eliminated the greatest season in San Diego Chargers franchise history, Philip Rivers, that guy who the Union Tribune said was coming for the gar- old guard of Tom Brady, Philip Rivers never beat Tom Brady one time in his career. Not on that day in 2007, not in, two th- not in 2008 when he had played through a torn ACL in the AFC Championship. Not once did Philip Rivers ever beat Tom Brady in his career. The Chargers ended up leaving San Diego a decade later in 2017. And this is a hugely personal story for me. I'm a San Diegan. I rep the 619 all the way through, even if that's the whitest way to say it. I love my hometown. And the Chargers were their team. Now it's the Padres, but it plays right into the inferiority complex of San Diego. We're not Los Angeles, we're not Boston, we can't have nice things, and we are the most cursed sports city in America now that the Cleveland Browns won their championship. It's been since 1963, but in the way that other places have sports curses with heartbreaking moments and disappointment, we have a baseball team that since its foundation in 1969 has the worst record of any Major League Baseball team. That 1994 Chargers team, 14 members of that team are no longer with us. The greatest icons of the city's sports history, Tony Gwynn and Junior Seau, both died young, becoming faces of their sports great scandals. In baseball, chewing tobacco, and in football, Junior Seau was the poster child for head head trauma and CTE. San Diego's sports curse is not the same kind of curse. Yes, we have these heartbreaking moments, but also a lot of people die. A lot of people suffer in San Diego of weird, crazy circumstances that don't allow you to ever be great at sports. In a city of one and a half million people, many of whom really, really love sports and many of whom really, really don't care. But San Diego is a cursed sports city and the curse also extends to the fact that Players die, heroes of the city die, and your teams leave you for greener pastures up in Los Angeles. So we can draw a straight line between if the Chargers win that game against the Patriots, go to the Super Bowl, win a championship, or even just get to that point, and the Chargers decision to stay in San Diego. Maybe after the McCree fumble, the Chargers punt back to Brady anyways. Maybe they lose in the conference championship, although it's highly unlikely considering the next year they beat the Colts in the playoffs to get to the AFC championship. And maybe, just maybe, the Chargers still move anyways. But it changes a lot of legacies, and it changes a lot of people's sports history. And honestly, for myself, since I can draw a straight line between the Chargers' decision to leave San Diego and my decision to no longer have a sports football fandom, and then my decision to become a broadcastery type who gasbags on here every single day for three years, I can draw a straight line between a moment that happened before I was able to understand football and understand sports moments and the trajectory of my life. And so I wanted to play the what-if game here while also combining it with the oral history to talk about 20 years of being a San Diego Chargers fan. My lifetime of a San Diego Chargers fan. This is an oral history the Chargers built around the story of Marlon McCree because we don't know what happened to Marlon McCree. The last time anyone heard from Marlon McCree was when he was arrested in 2017. Since then, we have no idea where Marlon McCree is. He has no social media. He hasn't been in any news stories. He doesn't do media appearances. Marlon McCree is just another invisible face in a giant America that has a lot of invisible faces and a guy who played in a sport where the faces can be invisible. And every time you say Marlon McCree for the rest of time, his name will be associated with one moment, maybe the lowest moment of his life, who knows? Sometimes this happens to sports pariahs, and unfortunately in the case of Marlon McCree and the Chargers, and even to a certain extent myself, it's a really interesting story of changing one moment, and the trajectory of life can change just like that. And since this is an oral history of the Chargers, I see no more appropriate time than to play this music. So to understand the oral history of the San Diego Chargers, let's just do a quick recap of about 40 years of history of San Diego sports, the San Diego Chargers, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So back in the 1960s, the Los Angeles Chargers moved down to San Diego in the AFL. 1963, they win a championship, and the team pretty much has just done nothing after that. It's not super interesting going on. They, you know, win a couple divisions. Draft high a few times, but the Chargers are pretty mediocre for a while in there, and then they end up bringing in Don Coryell in the 1970s to create the Air Coryell offense, and he should be in the Hall of Fame. He's not in the Hall of Fame. I think he'll get into the Hall of Fame eventually, but Don Coryell pioneers this new offense that ends up helping the Chargers make the playoffs in 1979, and they lose in the playoffs, but then they win the division again in 1980. And they make it to the conference championship and lose to the Raiders of Tom Flores, who end up going on to win the Super Bowl that year in 1980. Then 1981, they have two of the most memorable games back-to-back in the history of professional football and just daring the Chargers to just, you know, take this middle finger and walk away with it because this is a year where... Uh, Dan Fouts is putting up all-time numbers because this is a new weird offense, and Kellen Winslow is on his way to a Hall of Fame career, and Lance Allsworth and all that stuff. But what ends up happening is in 1981, they play a game at Miami that ends up being a 100-plus degree day on the field with Miami humidity. Uh, It is called now in the history books, The Epic in Miami, Uh, ridiculously hot and it ends up going to overtime and the Dolphins are kicking a game-winning field goal and it's blocked by Kellen Winslow and then the Chargers go down and they kick a game-winning field goal and there's the famous image of Kellen Winslow getting carried off the field and it's rated by the NFL 100 as the fourth greatest game in the history of the NFL because you just have back and forth and back and forth Chargers score 24 points they're up 24-0. Then the Dolphins score f- 24 straight points, and it's 24-24. And then Chargers score, Dolphins score, Chargers score. And then in overtime, you have Kellen Winslow getting carried off the field in one of the all-time great games ever. And then the very next week, they play in the freezer bowl where you go from 100 degrees and humid to wind chill that set the game at negative 59 degrees is what it felt like on the field it was negative nine at game time and the 35 mile an hour winds made it an absolute freezer fest and all of a sudden it was a. This is, by the way, courtesy of Wikipedia's article on the Freezer Bowl. They had a difference in temperature of 125 degrees Fahrenheit between the Epic in Miami and the Freezer Bowl in back-to-back weeks. The Chargers lose by 20-some-odd points to the Bengals. Bengals go to the Super Bowl and... That is the story of the best Chargers team under Don Coryell, And Dan Fouts makes the Hall of Fame. Kellen Winslow makes the Hall of Fame. And uh, Lance Allsworth makes the Hall of Fame from that team. Don Coryell should be in the Hall of Fame. So you have three Hall of Fame players on offense and a Hall of Fame coach that never made it to a Super Bowl. And to this day, when you think of the greatest players to never make a Super Bowl, it's like Dan Marino and everyone from those Chargers teams until you get to the 2000s Chargers, but we'll get to that in a second. So the Chargers end up, you know, doing the cycle thing where they're really good and then everyone retires and you kind of have to find new players because you didn't really innovate on the fly. And so terrible in the late 80s. Um, they have three straight 6-10 and ten seasons, and then miraculously out of nowhere, with Bobby Ross as their coach, who we talked about two weeks ago on our oral history of the Detroit Lions, which you can check out, um, Bobby Ross ends up leading the Chargers to a playoff win in 1992, and then in 1994 they have this miracle team that ends up going to Pittsburgh and beating the Steelers at 11-5. and five. and they end up getting absolutely slobber-knockered in the Super Bowl 49-26. I think I said it was the largest blowout in Super Bowl history. It was that up to that point, but then I think the the Seahawks and Broncos one shattered that record by a good amount. So it, at the time, it was the largest blowout in Super Bowl history, and then the Chargers kind of fade into mediocrity because Bobby Ross and the general manager of the 1994 Chargers, whose name I forgot right now, but I will try and find it. Oh, um, Bobby Bethard. Bobby Bethard and Alex... um, Bobby Bethard and Bobby Ross end up beefing, and it leads to Bobby Ross getting fired, even though Bobby Ross took the Chargers to the Super Bowl. Um, And it was very clearly the bad decision in hindsight, because uh, all of a sudden, our buddy uh, Bobby Bethard ends up getting fired after that, and the Chargers kind of just fade out of fade out of competitiveness for a while and so in 1997 they go four and 12 and they draft with the number two pick Ryan Leaf which then pushes the Chargers further and further into mediocrity after the fact and then in 2000 they once again get the number one pick in the draft and the Chargers end up having one of the all-time great draft classes of all time but what's interesting is that the Chargers traded out of the pick that would have been Michael Vick. Now, they end up getting Ladanian Tomlinson instead, but it's interesting the decision-making that went into that process, especially given what we've seen now with John Gruden recently and where the league was 20 years ago, is that a lot of people didn't want Michael Vick because he wasn't a true pocket passer or he couldn't run the air raid offense or other stereotypes for black quarterbacks at the time. And The Chargers have in passing been accused of these things at the time for not wanting Michael Vick and instead going with Drew Brees, which worked out, but the processes itself are interesting given the conversations we've been having for the past week or so around John Gruden. So they end up drafting Ladanian Tomlinson and they get Drew Brees with their second round pick, and he's like a first round talent at first round prices, and Drew Brees ends up being a pretty good quarterback for the Chargers after that. So they have an 8-8 season in 2012 where they're now at a transition period in the conference where the Broncos are no longer dominating the 90s or the late 90s for the Broncos. Uh, The Chiefs are not very good. The Raiders are okay, but this is 2002, which begins 20 years of mediocrity for the Raiders. So the Raiders are going to be mediocre. The Chiefs are going to suck for most of the 2000s. And this creates a little bit of a power vacuum in what at this time is looking like one of the weakest con- or weakest divisions in all of football. And so the Chargers, led by, at the time, Marty Schottenheimer, end up bottoming out in 2003 because Drew Brees ends up having surgery. And for the third time in seven years, they get the number one pick in the draft. And the quarterback available at that time was Eli Manning. And we know the story of Eli Manning is that his dad, Archie Manning, basically conferred with people around the league and conferred with Ryan Leaf and pretty much decided we don't want Eli to play for the Chargers or play for Dean Spanos. And this was also at a time where, again, the Chargers were looking to relocate And so the Chargers end up drafting Eli Manning, he looks ridiculously unhappy in his draft photo, and then they end up trading him to the Giants for Phillip Rivers. And Sean Merriman's also in that deal, and it works out okay for the Chargers, even as Eli Manning becomes two-time Super Bowl champion Eli Manning, and broadcasting voice of ESPN, who I really wish would have been on the broadcast on Monday, so that we could have heard him and Peyton have to discuss John Gruden. So the Chargers draft Sean Merriman, draft Philip Rivers, and Drew Brees has the famous quote now afterwards of basically saying when he heard the Chargers tell him that he was going to they were going to draft a quarterback, Brees told them you're making the worst mistake in your you're making the worst mistake of your life. And the Chargers did draft Philip Rivers. He sat behind Drew Brees. Drew Brees won comeback player of the year. And instead of trading Drew Brees to get some value for him, the Chargers end up letting him walk in free agency, and he signs with the Saints, and the rest is history. And this is a classic Oklahoma City conundrum where the Chargers could have had Eli Manning, Drew Brees, and Phillip Rivers, all three Hall of Fame quarterbacks. Chargers had three Hall of Fame quarterbacks on their team at some point. And if they could only keep one, they ended up choosing the worst of the bunch. You could argue that's the case. I think Phillip Rivers had a better career than um, Eli Manning. Eli Manning just happened to win a couple championships that boosts his resume and makes him a guaranteed Hall of Famer because of the legacy family that he comes from. Gives him that little extra boost when Eli Manning's numbers are on the fringes of the Hall of Fame because without those Super Bowls, he'd basically be Carson Palmer. So the Chargers get to 2005 with Phillip Rivers, and they end up going 9-7. and They build a team with Sean Merriman coming in and Quinton Jammer, Antonio Cromartie on defense, the last remnants of Junior Seau still playing for the Chargers. And then on offense, they've just built an absolute wagon and we talked about the 1980s chargers and it was important to talk about them when we bring it to the context of the 2000s chargers who were even better than those teams in the 1980s so i've heard those 80s chargers teams had three hall of fame players and a and a should be hall of fame coach the mid 2000s chargers though that was the 80s chargers the mid 2000s chargers had Ladanian Tomlinson, Hall of Famer already. Antonio Gates will be a Hall of Famer first ballot. Philip Rivers will make the Hall of Fame. All three on offense, Hall of Famers. Marty Schottenheimer, maybe one of the best coaches to never make it to the Hall of Fame. Greatest coach to never win a championship for sure. And the parallels are truly unbelievable given where that franchise was back then versus now. So, in 2006, it's Phillip Rivers' second full year as the starter for the Chargers. They go 14-2. They have the number one seed. They are the best team in the NFL. For the first time in the Chargers' history, they have expectations of success. The Chargers had never won more than 12 games in the franchise's history. They went 14-2. Ladanian Tomlinson won MVP, Offensive Player of the Year, Walter Payton Man of the Year. No Charger had ever won MVP since Lance Allsworth. The Chargers were amazing. And they lose that game to the Patriots on the Marlon McCree fumble. And the, the, this is the trajectory after that. At a time where they're fighting to get a new stadium... The Padres have just gotten a new stadium that opened in 2003, built off of the championship run they had in 1998. If the Chargers have a championship run in 2006, they get a new stadium, no questions asked, they're staying in San Diego for the long run. Spanos might even contribute a little bit more money to that because they have that little extra championship bump. Now, Dean Spanos is notoriously cheap and historically has always cared about taking the profits, similarly to his father, Alex Spanos, who famously, well, famously by San Diego standards, got his money exploiting farm work labor in the California Central Valley. And so the Chargers in 2007 are less successful, but still winning a division that is devoid of talent. The Raiders are awful. The Chiefs are awful. The Broncos are mediocre, but not as awful as those two teams. And the Chargers win a playoff game against Jeff Fisher's Titans, play the Colts at home, and this is famous by Chargers standards because it's the Antonio Cromartie three interception game on Peyton Manning that ends with Nate Cading almost blowing the game for the Chargers, um, the kicker at the time for the Chargers, which they beat the Colts that year, they make it to the AFC Championship, and Phillip Rivers has to play through a torn ACL, and he put off surgery and played through the game, and ironically, it wasn't the torn ACL of Phillip Rivers that ended up costing the Chargers. The reason they lost 21-10 or 21-12 to the undefeated Patriots team that year was because LaDainian Tomlinson ended up spraining his ankle during the game and he couldn't play. So ironically, it wasn't the torn ACL that ended up costing the Chargers the game. It was actually LaDainian Tomlinson's injury that ended up costing them a great defensive performance against that 17-0 Patriots team. 24-12 was the score. They probably coulda, shoulda, woulda won that game. And so the Chargers end up falling to the Patriots with a team that, yes, went further than the 2006 team, but the 2006 team was exponentially better. Like 2007, it was an upset that they had even gotten to that point. Like it was an upset of, it was like that Jaguars team in 2017. Like it was an upset of the Colts who were regarded as Maybe a better team, but the Chargers were way better in 2006 and probably better than the Colts in 2007, hence the fact they won the playoff game. But that one felt like a surprise that the Chargers got within one game of the Super Bowl. And so, again, the division is still bad. Chargers can win it by default pretty much every year. They do it again in 2008, again winning the wild card against the Colts, and they go to play a snow game. In Pittsburgh, famous for Troy Polamalu's one-finger interception that ultimately leads the Steelers to making it to the Super Bowl. So now in back-to-back seasons, you have loss to the Patriots, who go to make the Super Bowl, lose to the Steelers, who go on to win the Super Bowl. And so the Chargers become part of this path across four division titles in five years. 2009 was the one that really hurt. Because I remember watching the Chargers-Patriots AFC Championship game. One of my earliest football, well, my earliest football memory was the Colts and the Bears Super Bowl in 2007. And this was weeks after the Marlon McCree fumble, but I just remember the game being on. I don't remember any details of the game. I only hear about them later. That year of 2008, and really begins with the 2007 playoffs in MLB, but that 2008 season was when I really, really get into sports. And it begins with that Chargers run of Phillip Rivers tearing his ACL and coming back to play, and then the Patriots having the undefeated Super Bowl and seeing everyone get super excited about the Patriots-Giants Super Bowl and watching that at home. All that stuff was where I get into football. And I remember watching the one finger interception by Palomalu and thinking, oh, darn, the Chargers lost. 2009 was a brutal year because this is at a time where I was old enough to go to Chargers games. I went on Christmas night when they played the Denver Broncos. My first Chargers game was a couple weeks before that with the Cincinnati Bengals. I had been to Qualcomm, I had watched the Chargers all season. I'd watched as they won 11 straight games. 11 games in a row, and now they were in the playoffs, number one seed, 13 and 3, playing Mark Sanchez and the New York Jets. And they lose 17 to 14. Offense gets totally neutered in that game. The Chargers lose on a pile forward. And I will never forget watching my brother break down in tears on my grandparents' couch because the Chargers lost to the New York Jets in what might have been one of his earliest football memories. Who knows? That was one that actually genuinely hurt. When you're born into fandoms and you're trying to figure out emotions as a child, all of a sudden... You're thrust into a situation where disappointment comes in. And when you don't know how to handle it, sometimes your eight year old brother is going to cry watching the Chargers lose to the New York Jets. Because we had been to the games, we'd been watching the team all season. Every week on radio it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 9, 10, 11 straight wins. For your San Diego Chargers. And it all goes down against the Jets in the final game of the season. In the divisional round, for the second time in four years, number one seed falls. And that would be the end of the run for the Chargers, but not before a 2010 season that people famously joke about where the Chargers had the number one offense and number one defense in the NFL and still managed to finish 9-7 and seven and miss the playoffs. Because now you had the rise of the Denver Broncos around Peyton Manning and a four-year stretch of dominance for Denver. And Tim Tebow's one weird year was the reason why the the, the best Chargers team didn't make it was because of weird wins for Tim Tebow and one-possession comeback victories and all that junk that happened there. Chargers have a three-year stretch of being mediocre. 2013, they have a magical comeback run. The last day of the season, there's like five tiebreaker scenarios that need to go the Chargers' way. One of them comes true when the Chiefs miss a game-winning field goal at the very end of the game. As time expires, they miss the game-winning field goal that would have sent the Chargers home. They go to overtime. They kick the game-winning field goal. They get to go to the playoffs. They beat the Bengals in the first round of the playoffs as a magical playoff team. 9 and 7 magical playoff run. Beat the Bengals at Cincinnati. Make it to the Broncos. That was actually the most fun I've ever had rooting for a football team was that Chargers team in 2013 because they weren't supposed to make the playoffs. They shouldn't have made the playoffs. They were like a 9-7 and team. Would have been 8-8 and if the Chiefs had made that field goal. Like 10 clinching scenarios have to go their way for this to work out for the Chargers, and it all does. It all works out, and then they win a playoff game at Cincinnati. They make it to the second round and keep it close against the Broncos. It's one of these magical runs where it's like, will it never end? Will we never, ever lose? And this magical Super Bowl team can just beat the Broncos, and they almost did it too. They almost beat the Broncos, who were heavy favorites, in 2013, and that never really happens in football, where you get that kind of magical run like that. It happened to the Titans a couple years ago, but rarely... Rarely do you get that magical run. And at this time, the NFL is starting to look at relocation options. The Chargers end up gutting the team a little bit. They go 4-12 and in 2015, end up drafting Nick Bosa, I'm sorry, Joey Bosa. And then the Chargers move to Los Angeles. They put up a vote for a stadium. Nope. They put up, a vote for a second stadium. Nope. The Chargers go 9-23 and across two years. Fire Mike McCoy. And that's it. The San Diego Chargers cease to exist. In the changing financial landscape of the NFL, you have the Chargers disappear from existence. 50 years is moving up the road, just like the Clippers did. Just like lots of people relocate from San Diego because Los Angeles has cool things and we're not allowed to have those cool things. There's a real inferiority complex when you live in San Diego. It's a very real thing. It's passed down across generations. People don't like to admit it sometimes, but I think it's always there. It's why we always hate the Dodgers, but the Dodgers rarely think about us. Until we, you know, start being super obnoxious and the Dodgers fans have to acknowledge that we exist. There's this weird conflict within San Diego sports. And it all could have kept going. San Diego might be smaller market than Los Angeles. The Rams would still have their palace in Los Angeles because they had 15 years of crap in St. Louis after that magical run. They could have still had that palace and nothing would have changed. Except the Chargers would have their new stadium in San Diego. And I would still be a Chargers fan. And I'd be here feeling super emotional about the Chargers all the time. Not just when I hear that magical song get played. Or not just when reminiscing about childhood memories in San Diego. And the way I talk about the Padres here on the podcast and all that stuff. That would be still today. Would we even still have a podcast? Who knows? So many different factors play into all of this weird stuff. Who knows if I would have pivoted to Mahomes' love and decided that being a fan of the Lakers wasn't worth it anymore because I didn't have an emotional attachment to that team. Being scarred from losing a team and realizing, why am I torturing myself that way? Choosing to not support Spanos or the team and realizing just how like fragile sports fandoms are and how dumb they kind of are. Being hurt... And then realizing that the hurt was totally self-inflicted. in not as willing to invest emotional, ca- emotional stability and emotional capital in something that doesn't deserve that much emotional investment. Sports as a whole, I've decided, is worth way too much of my emotional investment. Hence the fact that I do like three to four hours of podcasts a day with my free time. Sports I've deemed absolutely, and I say this while recording this, I'm watching Freddie Freeman hit a game-winning home run potentially for the Atlanta Braves to move on to the NLCS. Like, investing way too much emotional stability and emotional capital into sports, yes. Into specific fandoms, No. And I can draw a line from this between the Chargers leaving and my growth as a person. Because immediately after the Chargers left, I knew I wasn't going to be a Chargers fan anymore. And it was sad. I cried a couple times. I was in the 10th grade the day they left. I was in 9th grade the day they decided that they had a one-year deadline to decide if they were going to move. And I was in the 10th grade when the Chargers decided to pack up and leave for Los Angeles. And it's not like the Chargers are one of these franchises that's been terrible for 20 years. They won five division titles in six years. They haven't won one since, but that's just because now they play in a division with the Kansas City Chiefs. They haven't had number one picks like they did three times in seven years. The highest pick they had was Joey Bosa at number three. Then they took Mike Williams at number seven. Then they took Justin Herbert at number six. Those are the highest draft picks the Chargers have had across 20 years, or at least since Philip Rivers. And this franchise has been, relatively speaking, by AFC standards, very good. We did the ranking with Stripe Hype, about 1 to 16. Where do these franchises land? And I believe, if I remember correctly, the Chargers were like 7 or 8 right there with the Bengals. We don't think of success for the Bengals, but when you think of the crud that's been in the AFC when you have... Six teams or four teams that have been dominating the conference for 20 years Patriots, Peyton Manning's Broncos, Peyton Manning's Colts, the Ravens, the Steelers, now the Chiefs. I mean, you look across 20 years, the Raiders have not won a playoff game in 20 years. The Jets haven't won a playoff game in 10 years or made the playoffs in 10 years. Dolphins haven't won a playoff game in 20 years. Jaguars have been terrible except for that one year. Bills didn't win a playoff game for 20 years. Like There's been a lot of crud, but the Chargers have been kind of this middle-of-the-road team, always just kicking at the door. And their best chance was definitely with Marlon McCree. And I wonder still what happens if the Chargers have that one moment, that one moment they can carry with them forever. Maybe not in the way the Bears still carry 1985 with them, but still the Chargers can hold on to that one moment. Kind of the way that the Bucks held on to their one championship for 20 years. Yeah, it might suck now. Yeah, we might have no chance. But we got that one year. That one championship. We got it in 2002. And now we have a second one that we can carry with us for 20 years. Of love and fandom and going to watch a parade and all that stuff. That feels good about winning a championship. So I presume because I grow up in the most cursed sports city in America. And I've moved over to Sacramento, which is another damn cursed sports city as well. So, yeah, it's an interesting way that emotional fandoms work, and it's changed my life. I'd say, in terms of my sports fandom, the Chargers leaving has to be one of the formative ways because the Padres were the other team, and they were just terrible for 15 years. They didn't ever have a chance. Made the playoffs in 2007. That was my earliest, or made a one, game 163 in 2007 as my earliest baseball memory. Since then, no playoff appearances until 2020. Not even close any years except for 2010. Other than that, no years where they were ever close. Just one of these Lions franchises, one of these Jets, Dolphins, perpetually mediocre. The few times they get to be good. They even disappoint then. Not even in like the way where it's like, well, only one team can win every year. Last year was magical and fun. This year, brutally disappointing. Having expectations and being brutally disappointed. And I'm interested and wonder what would have happened if there was just that one moment. Even if I could, even if I don't remember it, what if I had that one moment to keep creating more chargers memories? What if I hadn't been burned by the franchise? Think about it quite a bit, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for stopping in here to the Take It Easy podcast. We got episodes every single day, Monday through Friday, as well as Wired Up on Sundays. Make sure to follow, download, leave a five star review. Doesn't have to be a nice review; just has to be a five star review. Thank you to our partners over at Bet Online. Check out them for your fifty percent bonus. Uh, Thanks to Believe, all that stuff thank you to everyone who has made this podcast super fun and uh, we'll be back again tomorrow.